Hey, what's happening? Greg Brady checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Well, you are, and I guess I am too, because we're talking about it. Thanks for finding us. Really appreciate you subscribing and potentially sharing the podcast as well. We're busy today on World AIDS Day. We talked to Dr. Isaac Bogosh, who's done a lot in terms of HIV education, HIV studies. Um, it's kind of a passion project of mine. So we talk about it. Dr. Abdu Sharkawi, our guest as well. So we go kind of back to back and COVID information about restrictions and uh, where we're going in the next couple of weeks. Kind of vital right now. So we we did more of it than we did usually today. It, every show won't be like that. I get it. I hear from people that want the COVID guests that we're having on. Some people want more. Some people want less. We're, it's hard to make everybody equally happy. But I thought it was an important day to emphasize that. We talked to a Beatles historian about the latest documentary. We don't give anything away. No spoilers. Because it's long, and we want to give you time to watch that also. Lots on the show. Glad you're with us. Toronto Today for Wednesday, December 1st, begins now. And I applaud this from the mayor, John Tory. I know he's headed off to Florida from, for some R&R. I will embrace that. I will endorse that. There might be some people that criticize, oh, you're going, what's with taking a trip with Omicron? I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't change a thing. Now, he went to London like right as the pandemic was starting and then struggled to get back and then had to quarantine when he got back. But I, I absolutely, that was in, that was tough timing because we didn't know what was fully ahead of us back in March, late February, 2020s. I think when he took the trip, it was a trade trip uh, to London, England. And, and you know me, any chance to get to London, England, you should jump on and embrace. But we'll talk about that. And the fact that city hall will welcome their workers back January 4th. And that's getting some criticism, but let me defend that as well. So we'll talk about that. Um, the, the idea of workers going back to city hall, but also the concept of decriminalizing, not legalizing, decriminalizing um, the uh, possession of small amounts of drugs. And we talked about on the show yesterday uh, that particular scenario. Bottom hour, we'll talk to a Beatles historian. She's going to join us to talk about the Beatles. I, I haven't had time to dive right into get back. Uh, I want to. I want to see a lot of it. Now I've seen clips already. I feel like there's spoiler here, spoiler there, Paul here, George there. And it's I don't want it to wreck it. So I'm trying to avoid some of it, but I, I do want to get into it. Let me start here with uh, with documenting one thing I saw this morning, and then it's sort of a revisit from some of what we did yesterday with regard to the Toronto Star story that um, 4,000 people have passed away because of, well, not COVID specifically and not at all because of COVID in their systems uh, and how it affected them, but because COVID-19 and providing for those that had it, and not that we shouldn't have done that, it delayed surgeries. And it was a massive toll. A, like, it, like it staggered our healthcare system, brought it to its knees. Now, many people would tell you that this is something that was bound to happen. That every year when we have a flu, uh, hospitals are full. Okay, emergency rooms are full. You, have you ever been to an emergency room in December or January? I have, and it's a little bit of a different weight than it is in June. It just is because people bring in uh, their concerns and, and not that they shouldn't. They're sick. So they want to, they want to find out exactly how to get themselves better and they want to move quickly. Also, I don't know if you know this. It's free. Well, we pay for it with our taxes, but it is free. 
Alex Pearson had uh, Dr. Catherine Smart, who's the CMA president, on last night. And naturally, uh, she reacted to a lot of this. Let's play the 47-second one first. She reacted to the story and the uh, report that was prepared for the CMA. Um, so she, you know, not that there's a conflict, but that's the organization she's president of. But it's fair game, I think, for Catherine Smart to react to that information. Here's what she said about those excess deaths, not related to COVID-19, but that flooded our healthcare system and delayed surgeries and, and people died as a result. Yeah, it is very overwhelming to even think about it, you know, and it's it's death, it's suffering, it's so many things. Um, and, you know, what's so frustrating, I think, is we have known our healthcare system's been neglected for so long. You know, we had serious issues in our system long before the pandemic. And of course, it's been made worse by the pandemic. Um, but where is the action? You know, where are we really seeing our levels of government step up to, you know, own this problem collectively with those of us who are in the system and really start to work towards solutions? You know, we hear people talk about healthcare all the time. It, it often feels like a political hot potato, like not my problem, your problem, or I'll blame you, you blame me. Um, but, you know, that's not helping Canadians. Uh, that's not helping healthcare workers who are trapped in this system that's crumbling around them. It's not. And it was crumbling prior to COVID. COVID exacerbated so many issues with our healthcare system. And when we, you know, like I, I, I hesitate to use the phrase when we get out of COVID, but when we stabilize it and there's a sense of normalcy, and I've heard many people say, well, healthcare professionals need to come out and say, it's endemic. We're moving on. I've heard people play the blame the media game. I'm not one doing that. I can recognize, you know, the sources I pay attention to. I can recognize the, the you know, the things that that I will uh, advocate for. And uh, and I think there's a responsibility that we all have uh, not to. How would I put it? You've heard me document the fear porn before. I think Friday was a really, really bad day for that. A really, really lousy day. Uh, in terms of keeping things in its proper context with some of the stories and some of the you know results um, from discussing uh, what what it later we we deemed as Omicron. Here's Catherine Smart as well talking about the concept and Alex Alex Pearson put this to her the idea of a two tier healthcare system and listen a lot of people blanch at it but I will I will make the case after you hear this from Catherine Smart that. 4,000 people would not have died had we had it. Here's what she said. It's not working. Um, it's not working for patients. It's certainly not working for healthcare professionals. And unless we really, I think, can own that problem, say it out loud, own it collectively, we're never going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. This kind of tinkering around the edges, putting a Band-Aid on something yeah. that's already broken, it's not solving the problem. Um, and I think that's partly why we find ourselves here today. So, look, um, I talked about this uh, a couple days ago with uh, just just an exceptional guest, a nurse that's just burned out working in this system. And I get it. And, and there will people be, there will be people that look at the states and say, see down there, two tier health care does not work. It doesn't work. Well, you can't judge two tier health care by covid numbers. And you sure can't judge two-tier healthcare by COVID deaths. If you want to make the case that there isn't enough of a safety net to catch everybody, I'm here for you. I understand that. This is why uh, the concept of putting in universal healthcare. Hillary Clinton tried to do it during Bill Clinton's administration in the mid-90s. I was in school then. I remember presenting a seminar paper on it and studying everything Hillary was doing and poking, you know, saying what was good and poking into some holes in the process as well. The U.S. doesn't have the safety net that its citizens deserve and merit. It's it's to be honest, an atrocity that there isn't a safety net. But here's what I will say. 
people are going to make the case, well, there will be queue jumping and a two-tier system. Here's what it will do. It will reduce long waiting lists in the public system. But some people won't be able to afford it. Name me another industry where uh, there's a flatline perspective where you, you present equality for everybody. Name me another system. You won't be able to. 4,000 deaths. Catherine Smart's just telling you right there. It's not working. It's absolutely not working. Our system of universal health care isn't working. She said so. Now, of course, there's a concept of fear about about two tier health care. But I saw a story last night about a woman whose dad passed away um, and he was due a surgery in November of 2020. He died in June of 2021, still unable to get the surgery. It was a life lost. That, that was a perfectly healthy man who suddenly needed, not because of COVID, not because of COVID whatsoever, who needed a surgery and he died. What would that family have paid? What would that family have paid out of pocket? What would they have paid if some of their workplace benefits covered what that surgery needed? So you don't have a defense when it comes to life and death. You can make the case that we have to be able to have a bottom. In my health care plan, and, uh, you know, the Brady health care plan is not exactly being embraced by politicians anywhere, but nobody pays for kids. Nobody ever pays for kids. You shouldn't have to pay a dime to get your kid well. But that has to cease at a certain point in time. But, Greg, life is life. I know we've been watching this over the course of time during COVID. We've had debates about mental health. We've had debates about COVID obsession and COVID focus. And I was all here for it. I embraced this. I embraced that. This lockdown was the right time. Pulling kids out of school at the right time. But there's no appetite. There's no appetite for going backwards on this stuff. So you can have a two-tier healthcare system. Why should a millionaire, why should a millionaire get a free MRI? You tell me that we just had Doug Ford and you don't hear me defend a ton of Doug Ford's policies make the case that and, and this was his argument against electric vehicles. Well, we can't have millionaires who are buying one hundred and ten thousand dollar Teslas. That's not what would have been the case with electric cars. People like you and me, people in the middle, maybe to upper class, wanted to buy a Hyundai Kona for 40 grand and feel better about not paying a dollar 40 a liter for gas. And feeling like they were doing something better for the environment. Two-tier healthcare system needs to be a conversation. There is a way to do it. Going as we go right now and playing, because you're the one playing class warfare. If you say, oh, no, we can't have people jumping the line. Well, they have lives, too. And they have relatives, too. And if they're willing to pay and bring out a checkbook to keep a relative alive, seriously, what would you pay? I know we pay already in taxes. I'm getting that argument on text. Hey, we already pay a lot in taxes for healthcare. I understand that. But the system needs a full-on rejig. And we can't play this game where the idea of going to a second tier, it sounds hard, right? Well, there's people on one tier and people on another. That's not what it would be. That's not what the concept would be. And I will tell you from living in the States, if you have a job with benefits, you've got phenomenal health care. How do we get the majority of people? You don't wait for doctors. You don't wait for surgeries. I had an incredibly painful, debilitating knee injury. I had to have a surgery from, I don't know, running, tennis. Um, I was a catcher in baseball. That's never good for your knees. Um, I couldn't play worth a damn, and I had to quit at a certain point in time, but it hurt my knees over time. There's no doubt about it in my mind. But it's one of those things where I think we lay it out and go, I think we can make a case here that there has to be a conversation about it. Instead, what you hear is no, 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 no two tier. Keep it the way it is. I want some things to be universal in almost more a hybrid model.
What's wrong with having a talk about it? Don't patients have a right to pay for private care if the public system kills them by leaving them waiting too long? Answer me that. 289-975-1640. That's 289-975-1640 on text. 289-975-1640. Should we at least have a conversation about it? Do you see what I'm saying? That we could have some kind of voluntary health insurer owned by the state, owned by the government, that takes the pressure off the public system. If you can buy health care and you can jump a line to save lives, why is a person who makes a, a 150 grand a year, why is his life worth less than somebody who makes 40 grand? It's not. And we could actually flood the system with money that might actually be able to be pushed back into the system because we're not paying for anything right now. We know we're not, except through our taxes. Important day, I think, to do some reading on this. It's World AIDS Day today. This has been designated every year since 1988. And we just, um, in our What Happened When segment, we could look at things that happened. And last week was the anniversary of Freddie Mercury's passing. And that was a big thing. That was a massive thing. He announced he was uh, sick with HIV and AIDS. The next day he passed away, there was the big tribute concert in 1992. But that's that's 30 years ago. And Magic Johnson's appearance on Arsenio's show um, to talk about his HIV diagnosis. For everyone in my generation, anyone born in the, in the 70s, kind of 80s kids as we call it, we grew up with this. And just as to be honest, let's let's not blush about this. As many of us became sexually active, this was on our minds. And we're like, oh, great. Something else to worry about. Like, there's not enough to worry about. But it was on our minds. And um, and there was a stigma to it. And do some reading on this today. AIDS has killed between 30 and 42 million people worldwide. And it's still a massive, massive problem in third world countries, specifically African countries. So important to talk about, given we've been talking about the African countries and their response to this new Omicron variant. Um, very honored, uh, always am, to bring on Dr. Isaac Bogosh. You've you've talked a lot about HIV. You and I have had our own discussions about HIV. It's remarkable how, um, how we moved. And, and I see echoes of you know unfortunately for better or worse usually worse some of the coverage of covid some of the coverage really in the last few days that reminded me of the aids panic and alarm don't shake hands you could get it from a toilet seat all these ridiculous concepts and myths that stigmatize the disease early days for people yeah absolutely absolutely i'm really glad we're chatting about this today not only that look who gets the short end of the stick yeah. time and time again it's africa and in particular it's southern africa they obviously were decimated with HIV with very limited support for the longest time. Now they've, you know, you know, they've got they've got great scientists. I mean, we like to think of them as oh, helpless. Give me a break. They've got some fantastic scientists, some fantastic healthcare leaders. They isolated the Omicron variant, and what's the response? Punitive. Oh, we're going to ban travel to you. Never mind that it's all over the world. Never mind that there's community transmission outside of Southern Africa. The response is to ban travel to Africa and isolate people who have done their due diligence and done their duty to share this information with the world and to, you know, we wouldn't be having Omicron discussions if it weren't for this, if it weren't for these scientists. I mentioned World AIDS Day debuted on in 1988. You could, you know, retro uh, eyes yourself. We could play some crappy 80s songs to remind you what it's like to be in 1988 <laughs> and get you some shoulder pads or something. But either way, when we remember back then, it's it was a lot more stigmatized. Then I mentioned then three years later, even when we talked about Magic Johnson and Freddie Mercury, that the, you could barely get Western governments. That was eight years of Ronald Reagan. You could barely get Western governments to acknowledge um, the importance of it. We just we literally want to put people in the closet and keep them away from us who had it. Yeah, I mean, it's so awful. And, and I would say that now 
even in Canada, there's still stigma toward HIV, and it's really unfortunate. And, you know, there's still tremendous global stigma, but it hasn't gone away here. If there's one thing that people listening should take home from this, I mean, there's lots to chat about, but one, I think mm. one of the most important things is that if people are HIV positive, and they go on medications. And remember, the medications are so good right now. We have people who are on one pill once a day. They will live a long, healthy, happy, completely normal life. All they have to do is take one tablet per day. And guess what? They can't give HIV to anyone else. They just take a tablet a day. As long as their virus is suppressed with that tablet a day, they won't give HIV to anyone else. That means like condomless sex they won't give hiv Mm -hmm. to anyone else the risk is zero okay so like and they they look the same they act the same they function the same like people still think that those with hiv you know there's some terrible misconceptions you know emaciated terrible no you if you have access to these medications you have a long healthy happy normal life you're not giving hiv to anyone you can fulfill your life dreams you can have a family you can do whatever you like i mean it's it's as simple as that the real goal hey just like COVID 19 Get the medications to everyone on earth. Get the medications, the equitable access to medications. We hear that before? Equitable access to vaccines for COVID-19, equitable access to medications for HIV. It's 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 uh, redux, right? It's just a different disease this time. And the oral pills and the cocktails saved lives from where it was at. Big time. Massively so. It's it's strange too because I remember I remember doing a commentary. I've I've always loved doing this as radio topics. I mentioned um, doing a documentary on it in journalism school, but I remember making somebody mad once when I said HIV basically did stick to it did stick to um, you know intravenous drug users and uh, and the gay community. And I didn't say that to stigmatize. I said this is where our focus should be. This is where our effort should be. But it did not explode into the heterosexual population. What did what did we I know the, the World Health Organization made some wildly outrageous predictions about who would have it, who would get it. Right. Why did it stay where it stayed? And and again, we, we did everything we could to to as like COVID, take the fire hoses to where the fires are. Why didn't it explode into the heterosexual pot? How did we get that so wrong? Yeah, so a couple of things. One is obviously we are having a value judgment free conversation. Yeah. People will do what they do. And as long as people acknowledge that, that's great. The second thing is we have to think about, you know, networks of transmission, right? There, there was certainly a higher prevalence in men who have sex with men and, and a higher prevalence in, in people who inject drugs because those are the, like, those were the risk factors. Mm-hmm. Like those were the condomless sex in a group where you have higher, uh, higher prevalence will result in a greater incidence of new infections. Now let's, let's also remind ourselves too, that there are, um, you know, heterosexual individuals, including, um, uh, those of African descent uh, who are who are at greater risk. So like in Africa, for example, uh, and, in, and even in North America, there's still a lot of sexually transmitted HIV among heterosexual individuals. Um, and, and, you know, I think there's just different patterns and different uh, uh, smaller epidemics, depending on where you are in the world. Now, again, we're lucky to live in a country where you there's no reason if anyone's HIV positive, you have access to medications. They're affordable. They're effective. You, there's no reason you have to pay to get these medications. Like we have truly transformed this here in Canada. The job isn't done. There's still lots to do from a stigma standpoint. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot to do from a prevention standpoint. 
But I mean, we are eons ahead of where, you know, we were talking about in, in the 80s and early 90s for sure. And I'm glad you said that. And I should clarify because I know better. It has basically stuck to the same, uh, you know, danger groups, if you will, again, in a judgment free zone in North America, in Africa and uh, other places. That's been a massive problem. And, and as well, men who have, to be honest, slept around and slept with a bunch of women unprotected. That's been part of the reason for its spread in some of these countries where women women don't have the same equitable treatment and, and respect that we have here. And we got to change a lot of that as well. Um, I, I've only got a couple minutes on COVID and you're probably like, yay. <laughs> but that said, that said, um, I've had more. I don't know about you. I don't know about our audience. I've had more. I feel like I've had more emotional ups and downs in the last six days than then in a long, long time about COVID, we were going to such a good place. We were vaccinating five to 11 year olds. We were dropping the PCR test. People would get to travel. Christmas was coming. And and I feel better now today than I did yesterday at 430 with more travel bans of African countries, more nonsensical, non-science based restrictions. Yeah. How are you with all this? So for, for starters, it's not, you know, listen, so many of us are vaccinated. It's not like your protection from your vaccine is just going to evaporate overnight. It's not. You're still going to have some protection. The question is, you know, to what extent is there some erosion of that protection? But like those who are vaccinated are, you know, I, I, there's wild speculation and informed speculation. This is informed speculation. Mm-hmm. Your vaccine is going to provide you with significant protection against illness and uh, hospitalization, death, etc. You know, we'll see to what extent this chips away at the protection, but it, it's not going to be 100 percent or anywhere close to that. The second thing is, listen, if the goal is to reduce the introduction of this variant into Canada, yeah, the measures that they announced will will probably help slow it down. The question is, okay, so what do you do with that time? And the answer is, well, use that time wisely and start getting third doses in people who are 50 plus, start ramping up your sequencing, start ramping up your testing capacity in various places. You can use this time wisely. And then lastly, I totally agree with your point. Travel measures and travel restrictions to focused regions and to focused countries is performative. It doesn't do much at all. I mean, we know this virus is well beyond the borders of those countries that they listed, and including community transmission in countries that yes. aren't even listed. So, like, enough of this already. We're, we we can do better than that. I got twenty seconds. Do you expect boosters to get ev- uh, expanded out to eighteen plus, or do you think it'll be more a set demographic? My guess will be fifty plus in the coming week or weeks, and then in twenty twenty two, we'll just gradually head down the the poll of age until we reach 18 at some point you're gonna get a lot of 45 year olds looking for fake id i'm just I'm, <laughs> it's not it's not about getting it's not about buying stuff at the lcbo anymore this is not 1989 for guys like you and me we you had to get somebody older having some knowing somebody with an older brother that looked 19 was just the just a oh, gift that kept giving yeah. it really was oh god said uh loved having you on thanks for our chat today uh, important stuff especially the hiv stuff i'm glad you spent oh, yeah. time with me on that you well. Have a great day. Dr. Isaac Bogus, our guest. I always enjoy our chats uh, with our next guest, uh, Sabina Vora Miller, pharmacologist. It's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time for our audience, as always. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me again. 100%. Um, yeah, we were just talking about this with, uh, we, we got heavy hitters. You're part of Murder's Row. Dr. Sharkawi, Dr. Bogosh, and Sabina Vora-Miller. What's what's better? Like That's like getting three of the four. Uh, well, there's only two living Beatles. I screwed that up. But it's like having, it's a big thing, having you on. Thank you. For, after those uh, Titans, uh, we got a third Titan in you. 
Oh, I have uh, pretty big shoes to fill then. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, same size shoes, same size shoes. Um, it's, it's rough, right? We, uh, we, we've gone through so many emotional roller coasters. I know sometimes you, you and I talk about the practicality of where we're going with COVID, but the emotion. I've heard people say, well, you got to, you know, the virus doesn't get tired. You got to do this. You got to do that. But wow, um, the last five days, we just started vaccinating kids like we were talking about last week. We just get rid of the PCR test. We're thinking we're in a much, much, much better place for Christmas than we are last year and i still adamantly believe that but the last five six days have been an emotional roller coaster to put it bluntly oh yeah they absolutely have been and i I can tell you i I feel the very same as well i feel like you know um, a hamster on a covid wheel it just keeps (laughs) going on and on um i'm right there i'm right there with you um but i think that this is really when people need to just step away from the sensational headlines i think there's just too many yeah. sensational headlines, especially on Omicron on both sides of the equation. And just take a step back and let us do some of that research that we need to do and figure out what the next steps are. You know, you have people saying it's not a big deal and you have people saying it's doomsday and neither are going to be true. It's going to be somewhere in between. And so we just need to wait and avoid these sensational headlines that the reason why they exist is just to provoke you um, and we don't need more of that. We've had two years of that. And that's exactly, listen, pre-vaccine, when we uh, you know, felt like we were all getting hit over the head with a sledgehammer, waking up to a bad dream in March and April of 2020, we had to wait things out. We waited for really smart people to, to say, this is how you get the virus. This is how you can risk mitigate, mitigate and, and, and advise. We really didn't get information and recommendations on masks until, gosh, really late in the spring for various reasons. Um, we didn't get, you know, I ideas that the outside is so much safer so like anything else like it's hard to be patient i know it is for you me everybody else but we have to do it there's no other choice at an incredibly fast pace so we already have a lot more information on you know um, even things like omicron um, and we'll have even more information coming up in the next couple of weeks so it's not going to be a long wait it's just going to be a short wait and i think until we have that information we should just all sit tight and see what it looks like um, you know and, and not I, I, otherwise i mean i think we all are just going to be in that perma loop of despair and i think you know i think we've had enough of that I had enough of it what's encouraging to you about some of the initial data i look and i say well they're documenting that that you know many of the covid cases they're seeing with omicron are mild but sabina you and i know most of the cases period are mild that's not that's not t- this is why we talk about well do cases often always couple with hospitalizations and icus and and it's not in some cases, yes, and in some areas geographically, yes, but it doesn't necessarily trend that way. What's been encouraging to you about some of the data that's come out across the globe? Yeah, and I think, I, you know, the thing that really stands out to me is that the likelihood of the vaccines not working at all against Omicron are incredibly low, mm-hmm. exceptionally, exceptionally low. So, I, you know, I would say that despite everything we've heard so far, um, the vaccines still are going to pre- prevent especially severe illness against Omicron. So that's fantastic. That's, that's really, really good news. The second thing that I love about mRNA vaccines and why I actually love this platform is that you are able to tweak these vaccines um, in very little time. Typically, vaccines take several years to, to manufacture and develop Whereas um, the mRNA vaccines are easily tweakable. I mean, you had the CEO of Pfizer say that we need approximately 100 days to actually come up with a a more targeted vaccine if we need it. 
Um, and, and that's fantastic. Uh, you know, 100 days, that's three months. And, and that is completely unheard of. So there's a lot to be positive about and, and to wait and watch for. Um, I, I just think that, um, you know, sometimes, uh, especially in, in, in where we are in right now, two years off COVID and no end in sight, I think that it can get very disappointing to hear that it might be slightly longer. But here's the one thing that I do want to tell people. You know what the virus cannot evade? cannot evade public health measures. It cannot evade masking. It cannot evade testing. These are all the things that we have, tools in our arsenal we have that are working and they're still going to continue to work. Yeah. Do you, uh, Dr. Sharkawi spoke about um, the travel ban and I was, he wasn't surprised the federal government kind of doubled down on it. They added Nigeria, Malawi and Egypt um, to the list. I, I was a bit surprised, but he called it performative action. Does it do anything for you? Is there any purpose to it? You know, we know travel bans are ineffective. We've seen them happen across the board. I mean, it's one thing if you actually stop all flights, period. That's one thing. But if you're going to cherry pick countries, um, we know that it's not effective. We know that it's going to be penalizing countries that have good testing. The reason why we were South Africa was able to actually identify this is not necessarily because that's where it originated, but more because they had stellar testing. And, and we're not penalizing countries that don't even have a single case of Omicron, whereas countries that have community spread of Omicron, we're doing absolutely nothing with. So, you know, in my opinion, not only is it just performative, but I feel that actually it's fairly racist. It's hard to argue. Like what, like when we're talking about the Netherlands and Scotland and, and countries like that, do you find it intriguing that the U.S. has not documented any cases yet? Um, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theory person. I'm not like that. I don't wear the tinfoil hat. But a lot of people are wondering how that's how that's even possible in a country of 360 million that they haven't found a single case yet. I mean, if you even just look back at Delta, I mean, the U.S. was one of the last countries to say that they had Delta. And it basically went from zero percent to like majority Delta overnight. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I wouldn't put too much emphasis on that. I think that, uh, you know, if you if you're you need to be looking for something to be able to find it. If you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. And just because you don't um, find it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, so I personally find that very hard to believe. Um, I just think that uh, they're probably not looking for it the way that they didn't look for Delta when Delta mm. was uh, creeping up. Sabina Vora Miller, I guess. I want to uh, push this at you and get your thoughts. There was a headline, um, BBC ran with it, and, and I think it's all over in, in Canada now, but a study about kids with asthma. And we've talked about kids before and comorbidities and, and how those that have them are more vulnerable. I know it gets criticized sometimes as, um, as, as ableist by some, but I always think parents want to have the most data possible. And so I look and I say, wouldn't it have been better for public health officials to tell parents if your child does have an issue with asthma or or like my my kid has a peanut allergy or, or is that a factor? I, I always think they want to know more than less. But I understand, too, that's a sensitive subject with parents and we don't want to um, we don't want to stigmatize kids. But uh, is, more data seems to be better. And it makes sense that kids with bad asthma problems are more likely to go to hospital with COVID than those without. Yeah, I mean, I think that we've seen that even with adults, right? Um, any adults who actually have um, pre-existing uh, lung conditions, they were in the high-risk category to get the vaccine mm-hmm. um, before the general public as well. Um, and, and I think that, you know, what's important with the study, if I remember correctly, is that um, these are children who had poorly controlled asthma. And I think that in, in and of itself is something that should be, um, you know, well-treated and well-controlled um, and has health benefits to control in general. Um, but absolutely, I think that, you know, parents should know what, what risk factors put 
children at higher risk um, <clears throat> because then they can actually take steps to to mitigate their risk to say if they understand that their child might be at a higher at a higher risk than the average child. Um, but again, like I want to remind people that mm-hmm. a third of the kids who were hospitalized with COVID had zero underlying risk factors. So even if you don't have risk factors, it doesn't mean that um, you know that uh, that your child may not be impacted. COVID is very unpredictable in that way. Yeah, thirty-three percent is uh, is far from zero. That's for sure. Um, love our conversations. You bring your information and, uh, and and emotion to it. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thanks for having me. Today is World AIDS Day, and I'm excited to talk about it. It's important to talk about. I did. I wish I had the audio. I really did. I did some lousy things in college, and I don't mean to other people, but I did some lousy work in journalism school, like broadcasting-wise. But I was really proud of a documentary I did um, on HIV, and I would have done that in 1996. And remember, that's five years after Magic Johnson goes on Arsenio and says, I've got HIV. And I was a college student then. We all viewed it as... Well, that's bad news. Um, I will tell you just briefly, I went and got an HIV test once, not because of anything specific, but you just felt like you should. You just you get inside your own head sometimes and you want to reassure yourself. And um, and it, it, it moved. It was remarkable. The technology, the understanding how we didn't stigmatize it anymore, how information was out there, not unlike COVID back in the early 80s. Like, could you get it from Shaking hands, a toilet seat, this and that. None of that made any sense. None of that made any practical sense. Um, And everybody was worried it would explode into the heterosexual population. There's a little bit of panic, right? We know about panic, and it didn't. And I'm eager to talk about that with uh, Dr. Isaac Bogush in a little bit. I need to share this piece of audio, and I'm I'm hopeful uh, Dr. Sharkawi will react to it. Yesterday, do you ever watch the news? Do you watch the news on TV sometimes because you want to be informed? But then you get more confused. Well, that was yesterday. I saw that there was a travel ban um, expanded into three other countries, including Egypt. And then I also saw, but there's new testing rules um, for people coming to the airport. I got a friend of mine coming from Scotland who's coming for a month in, uh, on Friday, as a matter of fact. And he's panicked about this. He doesn't understand it. And I'm like, okay, I'll watch the news and then I'll be able to explain it to him. So I watch yesterday, okay, the uh, Minister of Transport, Omar Al-Agbra, uh, and he goes on television with Evan Solomon, who Evan Solomon's really good. And um, Evan asks him to explain the rules. Now, honestly, I watched this maybe eight times. I, I'm only going to play this for you once. See if you know what the rules are. Here's the clip. Sure. So a Canadian or a permanent resident uh, who are eligible to enter Canada and is coming from any of these 10 countries that cannot come directly, uh, they need to stop at a third country, get a PCR test uh, themselves. Uh, It's a pre-departure test uh, that they would normally get anyway, uh, pay for it, and uh, only be able to come to Canada if that test result is negative. Uh, And then upon arrival... They will be tested uh, when they arrive, and then they will be required to stay at a designated facility until the test result is out. And then uh, they'll be be able to get, uh, they are required a a day eight test, and once day eight test is negative, they will be, uh, they uh, they no longer need to quarantine. Get all that? I just, I honestly, and that's a public health, like kind of, that, that's a government official. And again, it's public health, no better, no better in terms of, it's utterly confusing. What will it do? 
deter people from traveling. We will get deterred about this stuff. And that you've seen the stock market tanking. That has a cycle that, you know, basically revs itself up. I'm very excited to have our next guest on, uh, Dr. Abdu Sharkawi. It's great to have, by the way, could you double, I know you're an internist, do you double as a psychiatrist as well? Because I'd like to lay down on a couch, play that <laughs> clip about 10 times and see if I understand it any better. I, I, have, I have a lot of things I'd like to say, and I don't mind what you charge me per hour, but I need a couch, I need to lay down, and I need to yell a little bit. It's uh, it's an open invitation anytime, Greg. <laughs> I'm not sure. Okay, but I need to see some ba- some uh, you know some medical backing that you are a trained psychiatrist. Again, we've all yeah, had I'm, to we've all had to be the last 20 months. Who's kidding? I who? Think, uh, I think I'm a de facto psychiatrist and uh, <laughs> and and grief counselor at this point in the pandemic. Oh my heavens! Um, the the travel ban was one thing on Friday. I was really surprised. I got to be honest. I was really surprised the federal government doubled down yesterday and added three more countries to it. How did you react to it? Honestly, I wasn't surprised. I, I, I think once you open the, the, the floodgates with respect to this sort of uh, uh, an intervention, um, you know, it, it tends to grow before it tends to rein itself in a little bit. Uh, but that's not to say that I wasn't profoundly disappointed, uh, as I'm sure so many other people are. And, and I think what we're really losing here is the distinction between being uh, cautious and uh, executing a, a precautionary principle that's that's based on being, um, you know, responsible in terms of protecting uh, the people and citizens of of, of this country um, w- with evidence uh, from from a method that we have some historical backing uh, from, uh, and and just being reactionary and, and, and using a fairly crude, blunt unsophisticated instrument that does not really address the root cause, uh, does not do anything but unfortunately stigmatize uh, countries that have been forthcoming and transparent in terms of their reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't do anything to serve the problem of really trying to stem the tide of where these variants come from in the first place. And travel bans don't help with that. And really what a lot of people aren't even understanding at this point is there is material consequences and harm that is already underway right now. Never mind the stock market tanking, Mm -hmm. never mind everything else. I don't think too many people know that more than 75% of the cargo of medicine, PPE, vaccines, a whole bunch of critical supplies are stuck right now in the underbelly of cargo planes, passenger and commercial planes. They're not accessible to South Africans. So people in the country of South Africa are suffering right now. It's not a theoretical risk. Are we okay with this? Never mind the draconian nature of of the bans themselves and the fact that it's not addressing the fact that this variant's all over the world. We're deluding ourselves if we don't think that this variant is in every single populous country on the globe. It's ridiculous to assume otherwise. I'm chatting with my mom last night, and you can imagine Mrs. Brady is uh, 76 and she watches the news, but she has no inside information. Um, I barely have more than her, to be honest. But she says this to me, Doc. She says... uh, you know, it's amazing there's no cases in the United States. I'm a little suspicious of that. And she makes the point, 
if Donald Trump was still president, we'd be really suspicious that no cases have been announced, would we not? Absolutely. And of course, there's cases in the U.S. It would be completely, you know, uh, asinine to, to make the assumption that there isn't. There's been global travel that has occurred on a daily basis with millions of people for months on end. There's actually very credible uh, research that now has demonstrated that if we follow the genetic trail of this variant, it was present in many other parts of the world as early as October the 7th. And that may include different parts of Europe. We have evidence that there were cases reported in the Netherlands, Mm -hmm. you know, at least 10 days before South Africa was very transparent uh, about everything. So the fact that we're earmarking specific countries in northern and southern Africa and ignoring other countries, first of all, smacks of sort of, you know, political alienation and and pushing around the little guy, if you will, which just doesn't, it's not good, I think, from from a global, um, you know, relation standpoint, when we're trying to attack this as a truly global pandemic, but it's unscientific. The variant is everywhere. Instead of invoking these travel bans, let's focus on addressing what we can do to fix the problem everywhere there are variants. And let's not forget, we got this Delta thing that's still going on. It's still going on. It's very much here. We very much know what Delta can do in terms of breakthrough cases and what it can do for people who are unvaccinated or partially vaccinated. How about doubling down our efforts to help fix the vaccine gap? How about trying to uh, thoughtfully establish a protocol for boosters, for people that are at higher risk, while supporting vaccine equity by increasing our, our donations to, to, to COVAX and other parts of the world. Why do we have to give with one hand and take with the other? And I think this is what's really upsetting uh, to a lot of us and I think is undermining our credibility here. Dr. Abdu Sharkawi, our guest on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Yeah, I I look at Friday and I think I think you know you're a parent like me, and I think my goodness, what what a, you know good things are happening. We've been able to ward off a lot of Delta. We've opened a lot of things up in the major cities, and we're seeing vaccination holes um, pop through in some of the smaller communities, the rural areas. So we, we got to direct our attention there. But then then we're able last week good news stories, right? And I love good news stories. We get to start vaccinating five to eleven year olds. We're gonna drop the PCR test and people fully vaccinated families that feel confident can go to the United States. And then this, and I, I, I love my industry. I love the media. I'm a media junkie, but I, I just didn't think Friday was an awesome day. And it became a self-fulfilling prophecy of, of panic feeding off more panic. I, I, I hated how Friday felt to me inside. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and I think, listen, um, it's, it's easy for uh, everyone to be the armchair Pundit, I, I recognize there's a tremendous amount of pressure for uh, our legislators and our government, and they do want to do right, and they don't want to be told that they weren't, uh, you know, protecting uh, the, the citizens of this country. I get it, but we've got to temper that with some evidence. We've got to temper that with some reason. I don't know a single credible infectious disease or epidemiologist expert in the entire country who's on side with this. I'd love to know who they are because they certainly haven't made themselves known. Um, I fully intend to to vocalize my concerns and to to reach out 
to, to the Prime Minister's office and to Minister Al-Ghabra um, with a number of my colleagues and ensure that our concerns are, are um, uh, you know, heard and that they're addressed. And look, let's hope that we can rein this in. Let's hope that at the very least, this doesn't continue to grow. We can learn from past mistakes, from, from the debacles of these quarantine hotels yeah. that didn't work. Um, let's learn about what the real downstream effects are uh, of losing trust with the rest of the global community um, and what that's going to mean for our safety. I think we can do this, and, and, and I, I really hope uh, that our, our elected officials rethink this, revise their point of view, and hopefully make this something that is a misstep. And everyone makes mistakes, but let's not uh, let's not double down and dig in our heels and 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 make a bigger problem a lot worse than it should be. I only got a minute here, but I want to ask you: If you feel on the street, people you talk to, people that rely on you, that have seen you as a, as a, as I have a real a real beacon of of playing it straight the last twenty months, I think there's two conversations people are not ready to have, and they may never be ready again, regardless of where this goes, and especially if if the new variant is is Delta esque, but not worse. They don't have the patience to talk a lockdown. They don't have the patience to talk about schools getting close. Those are just bridges too far for a virus that certainly seems endemic for us. I couldn't agree more. There's absolutely no excuse for a lockdown. Again, we have the tools, we have the information, we have the systems in place. A lockdown would be unforgivable. It shouldn't happen, plain and simple. And we know what we do to improve school safety mm-hmm. as well, especially in terms of improving ventilation standards. And, and if we get our kids vaccinated at a decent clip, it shouldn't happen. So I'm I'm guardedly optimistic that uh, those are things we can ward off. Well, we got to have crowds for the Leafs inevitable run to the Stanley Cup final. <laughs> I mean, I know everybody said they wouldn't get sucked in early in the regular season, but they're playing so well. We're getting sucked in. Soup's on. Soup's on. <laughs> it's great to have you. Thank you for bringing it to all this information. You're a big fan with our audience, and I thank you for coming on. Always a pleasure, Greg. Stay safe. Dr. Abdu Sharkawi, our guest. I swear, Beatles have been on my radar since maybe right around the time I started listening to the radio as a kid. was right around the time uh, John Lennon uh, was shot. Right around late 1980. People said, when did you get into music? It was probably right around then. It was all like kids' music and like you know, uh, what's that song about the hippo? Not the Hungry Hippos game. There's something about a hippo in a bathtub. I don't know. I think it's very Canadian. I do think that. But everybody's talking about Get Back. I am uh, holding and reserving judgment because I need the time to see it. I need a block of time. It's really long. Uh, We should have known better. Peter Jackson made all these Lord of the Rings movies, and I took my kids to a couple of those, and I'm like, when is it? When is this over? This is this is like a Springsteen concert instead of anybody else. Why is there another encore happening? And of course he made. <laughs> I'm not sure what the editing process was for Get Back, but it's long, and I want the time to get through it. I start so many things and don't finish them. I want to uh, bring on a Beatles historian, Aaron Torkelson uh, Weber, uh, teaches American history at Newman University, uh, and also published an analysis of the Beatles, the Beatles, and the historians, an analysis of writings about the Fab Four. Aaron, thanks very much for coming on uh, Toronto today. Nobody wants my job, not in a pandemic. I want your job. Um, if you're off, if you take any kind of academic leave of absence, I'd like to step in. I, I, I don't, I couldn't do it like you do, but I think it'd be a hell of a lot of fun. Well, then you'd have to grade some research papers, and that's not necessarily <laughs> all that much fun. I know how to give C's and D's. I know what C's and D's look like. I work in radio. I can, I can relate to that uh, at the uh, at the college level. 
I'll ask you about not just the uh, the doc itself, because we won't talk about it. We won't give any spoiler alerts. Why the fascination still and why have they survived in terms of being way, way more fascinating than other bands that have broken up or even other bands that have stayed together like the Rolling Stones or Townsend and Daltrey? I know the Eagles had a huge documentary, but nobody talks about the Eagles like they do the Beatles. Well, I think a significant part of it has to do with simply their premier position in rock and roll, but also all of the unanswered questions that occurred because of the way the Beatles split and the major debates in Beatles historiography that fans and authors are still arguing about to this day. Get Back, the new documentary, Mm -hmm. adds to fuel for both sides on those major debates. Do you find do you do you look and say it all would be different in a modern lens that we can simply we have big celebrities, we have big musical acts. I mentioned, you know, Springsteen's been doing what he's been doing for close to 50 years now, but we can't ever have another Beatles. We've had moments come close where there's massive mania about certain bands. It could be even in the 80s. I felt like that with the second British invasion where Wham was massive. Duran Duran was massive, but but it's not sustainable like the Beatles sustained it for seven years. No, not anymore. The reality is that mass media and society is so fragmented that you are never going to have another event like first Elvis and then the Beatles. They reached a level of popularity and importance that is really simply impossible to achieve today. Uh, it's uh, Aaron Torkelson Weber, our guest. You can, by the way, I'll, I'll uh, let you know where you can read her da- or her uh, blog in their own words. That's at beetlequotes.wordpress.com. She's a university professor and a Beatles historian. What's the biggest question you've had about the Beatles that that you've never really gotten a definitive answer to, Aaron? Well, I think the biggest question that everyone still debates, and that's fans as well as authors, is the reason of why they broke up. And The Get Back documentary is being entered as evidence regarding that particular issue. You have people who argue that it's a whitewash that is primarily being promoted by particular Beatles, especially Mm -hmm. Paul McCartney. But then you have other individuals who are arguing that it's a revision. And for historians, revisionism isn't necessarily a naughty word or a dirty word, so long as it's evidence-based. The problem is with Jackson's new film, and I'm not going to give any spoilers either, we're still getting his interpretation the same way that the previous film was Michael Lindsay Hogg's interpretation. There's someone else's vision and they're framed through someone else's eyes and someone else's lens. Ideally, what Apple would do, and they will never, ever do this, is give us the audio tapes and the videotapes and let us examine those. Those are the actual primary sources, but... There is no chance that Apple is ever going to give those to us. It's difficult to estimate the level of burnout that they probably went through when uh, and, and it's probably is what busts most bands up. It, it Bands get go through that cycle, right, of tour album, tour album. And eventually, if you're if you're a massive band, if you're the Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, uh, I'd even I would make the case the band I'm a huge fan of that that just got fried at a certain point in time. Oasis. They just they didn't know uh, they eventually had to step off the treadmill, uh, take a break. And then and then Noel says, I want to do my own thing. It's difficult to estimate that even in a pre-internet world, in a, in a world where we feel like we know everything about everybody at all times, how fried the Beatles were by 1968, 69, even so much, even stopping live music, stopping live concerts because they couldn't they couldn't play properly because of the screaming. That's almost sad in a way. It is sad. And there are some historians who argue that 
the Beatles stopped touring just a little bit too soon mm-hmm. because the auditory available in the stadiums improved drastically that they had other options. But there were other fractures going on with the Beatles that you don't necessarily have with all those other bands. And the biggest one would probably be the unexpected death of their manager, Brian Epstein, and then the battle over his successor, where you have John wanting to choose Alan Klein and Paul flat out refusing to follow John's lead. There always seems to be empathy with George Harrison uh, because they look and say remarkably talented guitarist. But um, but it's a lot like, uh, you know, some some people are just born born to be Robin or Scotty Pippen or like I said, um, you know, the second part of a uh, of a musical act that that just, you know, there's a definitive leader and everybody else must follow suit. It seems like Harrison had the most to gain almost by the Beatles breaking up because he was a prolific songwriter and he couldn't get more than two or three songs on each album. He did. And. There is a lot of empathy for George from certain fans and from certain authors. There are a few authors who aren't particularly big fans of George, and you can see that in their work and in their analysis of him. But I think George initially made out very well. He had a huge smash hit, of course, with All Things Must Pass. But curiously, within just a few years, his reputation has diminished considerably, while Paul and John have seen their reputations their solo reputations increase what's fair aaron torkelson weber our guest i'm having a great time talking with you about uh the beatles uh and and you're bringing uh, such great uh historical knowledge uh, and perspective to it what's fair about yoko what's not it's been very much a uh, <laughs> just over discussed and and overcooked uh theory about her it was you know i thought one of the best things about this is spinal tap uh was the idea that this woman comes into the band starts dating david st hubbins and instantly things go all to hell and that's obviously referencing yoko ono what's fair what's 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 been really unfair to yoko over the years Well, the reality is that she's the single most polarizing figure in all Beatles historiography. And that means that you have depictions of her from Beatles authors where there is virtually little to no negative that is acknowledged about her. And you have other depictions of her from Beatles insiders such as Tony Bramwell or most infamously Albert Goldman, where they have nothing positive to say about her. And when you get into issues like that, What you're supposed to do is acknowledge that no person is wholly bad or wholly good and that the medium is generally where you're going to find the more accurate version of events. A big question about John Lennon. I'm curious where you lay on it, because it's a great thing, I think, to to have a beverage, sit around with somebody who loves the Beatles like I do and, and debate. Lennon was so spotty in the 70s with his music. Sometimes it didn't feel like he even wanted to do it. He sure he just didn't look like he wanted to participate fully on in being a pop star. And that's fine. He he dies, as I mentioned, so tragically and awfully. And then Double Fantasy is a massive hit. Um, McCartney never stopped making hits, never stopped sort of being on that music treadmill. You know, do you think Lennon was that was a legit comeback album and he wanted to spring into the 80s and, and be everything Paul had been? I think what most Beatles historians argue is that the initial reviews for Double Fantasy were mixed and there was a small level, at least, of perhaps disappointment in what Lennon was putting out. Then, of course, you have the tragedy of his murder. And we have evidence to indicate that publications such as Rolling Stone changed their initial reviews of Double Fantasy to more positive ones. Mm. You have this outwave, this pouring of grief and 
again, you look at the patterns of history. When historical figures die, people tend to want to celebrate their accomplishments and not have to confront any of the unpleasantness that may exist. Well, and you remember the legend as well. Like we didn't have to see Jim Morrison playing somewhere in his in his 60s, right? Kurt Cobain would be 56 years old right now. What would he be like? Like, would he be on stage playing Smells Like? We'll never know. We'll never know. And and so, yeah, it leaves a lot of unanswered questions. And that's really one of the hooks of the Beatles. That's yeah. why people are so interested in this Get Back documentary. They're trying to look for more answers. Again, ideally, we'd get the primary sources, but I don't see that happening. Aaron Torkelson Weber, our guest from Newman University. What a pleasure having you on. Thanks for making time for us up here in uh, Toronto, Canada. We appreciate it. Well, thanks. I had a great talk. Totally. It was a great talk. Hey, appreciate you listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We'll be back with a live show tomorrow on Thursday. This week is flying by uh, despite the heaviness of uh, some of the news at times. But we're keeping it positive, keeping it realistic, keeping it promising, because I think we're going into a promising place regardless of some of what you have heard and had to digest. So new live show tomorrow, 530 to 9, and find us right back here for uh, all your podcast needs tomorrow on Toronto Today. Thanks very much for listening.